my dad would cook for him and all the guides lived in this little we called it the mouse mahal i mean it was just a little rundown shack I'm kind of an addictive person if i ever get on drugs i feel like it's over <laughs> Alright guys, episode three. Uh, we appreciate everybody for tuning in. Kind of excited about this one, a guy that I know real well and so does Ira. Jason Zare, uh, he's a doctor, a duck hunter, business person, duck call collector, duck caller, you name it, sports enthusiast. You can have a conversation with Jason uh, about anything. So kind of looking forward to getting started here, talking about how Jason got his start in a couple different things and how his journey's taken him some places he might kind of thought it never would have. Jason, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Hey, what's up, boys? Good to see you, Joe and Ira. Thanks a bunch. Appreciate it. Hi, buddy. Hell yeah, man. As we get started here, if you would, Ira, kind of talk about a little bit about how, you know, Jason, with being an owner of Habitat Flats, talk about how you kind of come to become partners with Jason, kind of what that process is kind of like. How would you describe that as far as what, you know, Jason's involvement with Habitat Flats has become? Well, I've known Jason for a while, um, you know, just from being in the community when I had Mo Marsh and he was uh, strong on the Avery sporting dog side of stuff and involved there. And uh, he certainly was buying and using Mo Marsh products for his hunting and for his dogs. And so we had some relationship and, and obviously we hunted in the same areas as well. So we knew each other there and our, our paths would cross here and there. And uh, a few years ago, we decided that we we're going to sell some of our equity in Habitat Flats. And, uh, you know, so there were, we didn't really make that widely known, but Jason was in the area. He had a few farms in there. He duck hunted in the area and we would visit about the season and whatnot. And he was nice enough to let the Momarsh crew use his, one of his farms a couple of times for one of our spring photo shoots. And, uh, and obviously you kind of knew him too. So Jason had some interest in becoming an equity partner at Habitat Flats. And so we went from, you know, kind of a here and there relationship to a relationship now where, you know, we talk frequently and, and uh, I appreciate the fact that Jason has a, a good handle on business and I'm happy to have him be part of the team because, you know, he's well-grounded and objective and all the things that you want in someone that you're operating a business with. So, you know, we've become close friends through, through this and, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's nice to have them on board and uh, it's nice to to be on the same page 99% of the time. So that kind of takes you through how you've known Jason and it's kind of the same with me, you know, hunting together and just always bouncing stuff off each other. You know, Jason's one of those guys, he could have a hundred things going, but he always is one of those guys that you could be like, hey, what do you think about this deal? And he'll not only give an opinion, but I don't know if he stays up all night or what, but researches it and has every which way kind of covered. And so he's a great person to bounce ideas off and everything. And I know when he, when he and I were hunting that day, we we're talking about, you know, what you guys were doing there at HF and kind of how it went. And it's just kind of cool to see how it's all unfolded here. And I feel like, you know, from an outsider's point of view, he's definitely been a good addition there too. Uh, why don't you kind of give us a little rundown on just kind of your early life and, and kind of a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah, man. Uh, sounds good. I'm an, uh, I'm an ER doctor by trade. That's what I went to school for. That's what I went to residency for down at uh, University of Mississippi in Jackson. And um, like waterfowling is, you know, I started back in, gosh, Swan Lake, 83, like golden days, Mark Twain Lake filling up. So been doing it for a long time and really chose my profession of ER based on no call, and condensed work months, 12 shifts. I was like, that gives me the maximum time to duck hunt in an occupation that I can think of while still maximizing, you know, my time and compensation, et cetera. So like duck hunting basically drove my choice of profession, uh, took me to the ER, which took me to Jackson, which is, man, that's kind of where things, where things started down there. Like known you guys for a long, long time. In fact, God, I think I met Aaron first in like 97 on a Ducks Unlimited committee in Columbia the year after I graduated college but I had a had a really good dog um moved down to Mississippi got his grand title got some notoriety with the dog got into duck calling uh, and doing the competition thing and qualified for the worlds in 03 and 04 and that led me to the Avery Pro staff and then moved back to Missouri in 
2006 doing that stuff. And again, just like, like you said, into the area and started kind of started from scratch looking for places with a network and grew those. And it's just like building from a little place to a little bigger, to a little bigger, to this place on, you know, let's get on this side. Let's get on this side. Let's have a place for early a place for late and uh, kind of, kind of got to a pretty decent conglomeration of uh, places until, uh, gosh, it's been about, th- I think this is the third year where really all that kind of culminated. And I mean, for me, what was a dream come true to join Habitat Flats? Well, there, you know, what you just said there is a remarkable journey itself. One thing I took from one of the first things you said was you chose your occupation based on duck hunting, kind of thinking about with duck hunting in mind, I would say most ER doctors to go out on a limb here with my limited knowledge of medicine, but I'm going to say most ER doctors probably have a different short list of reasons of why they, why they became, uh, why they became doctors. But I think yours is probably about a good reason of I've, as I've heard. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I did that you know, gosh, I guess I started residency in ER in 01. Um, you know, residency is pretty tough. Residency's, you know, 80 to 100 hours every week. Did that for four years. Got out, came up, got my first job at University Hospital in Columbia as an attending in 06 and did that for, gosh, four, five years, um, four and a half. The shelf life, the thing about ER is the shelf life of an ER doctor is not very long. Uh, burnout rates high. You don't you don't see a bunch of 60, 65 year old ER doctors running around. They're they're pretty much done by then. So we saw a need here in Columbia for um, you know me and a buddy. We're in the ER all the time, and I, this is going to sound a little bit cynical, but we have all these people coming in with sore throats and hangnails and you know ankle sprains and all this kind of stuff. We're like, man, what are you doing to me? Like give me some good stuff. Give me some, you know, I need some trauma. I need a, let's, need let's, a do code. A code. let's do a code. Let's like, I'm here for the good stuff. And so he said, like, wait a second, there is definitely some need here is not being met in Columbia with this other, you know, with this kind of little stuff. So we went out in 2009, started in 2008, ended up opening in 2009, like great time to be opening a new business, right? 08, 09. Huh. And started a uh, an urgent care, you know, walk in clinic, and um, and we were really blessed to. Uh, uh, this sounds really weird. We were super blessed to start one two months before the swine flu H one N one in two thousand nine. Like I just I'm wired differently. I think differently. I was like, hell yeah, flu pandemic. This is perfect. Nothing better. Uh, Nothing better from my personal agenda than a bunch of people dying. Like we call it, we call yeah. it jobs. <laughs> hangnails, a cough, and diarrhea. <laughs> we call it job security uh, yeah. around around the there. And so we were lucky that man, two months in, like all of the, I mean, you guys have all done it. You've done it multiple times, right? Like you got anxiety. Is it going to work? What do I have on the line? Um, are, are people going to use the product? Um, and you know, we had, I had my house on the line. I had cars on the, like, we had everything we had on the line for this deal. Um, you know, put up as collateral. But are you still, and at this point in time, you're still doing your deal in the ER as well? I'm still full-time ER because I needed one more year in the ER to get vested for the state, um, retirement program. So my buddy was a year ahead of me. So he was, we were, we were going together and he was going to do the bulk of the work for a year. I had to stay full-time. So I was full-time in the ER and I'd work in the urgent care the other three days or four days of the week that I wasn't in the ER um, to give him some time off to get through to where I could go to the urgent care full-time. Um, and, you know, you just, you never know. You roll the ball out there. You're not sure what's going to happen. We were lucky that we had H1N1 and, you know, we went into the black in the third month of existence and never looked back. And so from there, we just, you know, it's like, you guys know this stuff. It's like business. What are you, what are you trying to do with a new business? You either have to, you're either trying to fill a need that's being not met, you know, fix somebody's problem or it's something, it's not something that people need fixed, but you think you can do it much, much better than it's being done, a better mousetrap. And so 
we thought both. We're like, A, there's a need here, but B, we don't think healthcare is being delivered like it should be. So we did some things that were unique in terms of calling people back. You know, every single person we made sure was doing better. We didn't even charge them if they came back in two weeks, just like outside the box thinking, well, it was successful. Like, lo and behold, go figure. If you take good care of people, they, they tend to like that. And, you know, so we grew the business and expanded into two, two other shops in Columbia, had three clinics. And then we got lucky again around 2015 that you had the, the blow up, the explosion of urgent care. And so being in the Midwest, there was a race from the West Coast and the East Coast to the Midwest to see who could buy up, you know, who could buy up urgent cares the fastest because they were looking for volume. They needed, they needed doors, they needed bodies. So we were able to take advantage of that. And we exited in 2015 from the urgent cares. We had to stay on for a year. And um, after that, I went back to the ER um, from then until just about two and a half years ago. Okay, so, so that, so you're talking about starting a business, working probably more hours than a lot of people do in a, in a month, you know, at these two jobs. And it's like, you, know, you see a doctor, you're like, oh, rich doctor, this and that, whatever you know, but you don't think about somebody in there getting after it like that. And, and also you're talking about getting lucky. Yeah. Some luck for sure. But the bottom line is you hear a lot more people getting lucky with a good business than what you do. People that, you know, I mean, it, you seem like it's lucky, but at, at the, you know, there's a reason you did it, but one, one parallel I'd like to draw how you talked about starting up the, the vet or the, the, uh, the, the urgent cares, Ira, why don't you talk? Cause I've heard your story a little bit too. So that's Jason's story about how he kind of started up that deal. Talk a little bit about the grind or the struggle a little bit with you guys when you started up your vet clinic. I know, I know it wasn't always as, as lucrative or you didn't always have as much money in your pocket, maybe as you do now. So talk, kind of just talk a little bit about that too. It's kind of cool. Well, you know, I was sitting here thinking and I think it'll be a recurring theme throughout our podcast, kind of regardless of guests that, you know, at some point people that have become successful beyond just collecting a paycheck took a lot of risk put a lot of things on the line i mean jason had his house mortgages cars didn't sleep we we did the same exact thing so you know i mean i was working as an emergency veterinarian at night and working our clinic our clinics that we had just opened during the day not i didn't pay myself nor did aaron for seven months um and it was, you know, we were losing money hand over fist there for a while. But, you know, that's just part of having a startup, whether you're a doctor or a plumber or uh, a gunsmith or whatever, there's going to be some risk and there's going to be a lot of hard work. And uh, same thing with Habitat Flats. I mean, it's, it's universal across the board. And then, you know, our, our story's kind of parallel. You know, the private equity sounds like it hit pretty heavy for them 2015. Uh, you know, the private equity has really gotten into the vet world here, you know, since uh, 2018, probably on the on the vet side. And, and we did the same thing. You know, we sold some equity in our businesses and, and took some cash. And of course, we both still work and work on all, all kinds of other stuff. But it's a similar it's a similar story. And I bet we continue to hear it just, you know different chapters of the similar book unless you're going to inherit well or you're going to really hit what something that truly is luck there that's just what i find the more i go on i mean there's not that much that happens without some decent planning and a damn good bit of of hard work and or risk you know it's just it's just there's really no other way to say it you're sitting there as an er as an er doctor you start up urgent care, you multiply that business, you sell that business. Obviously, you know, things are going, I'm assuming you don't still have your car mortgaged. Um, you go back to being an ER doctor. Everything's going good there. You're getting to hunt quite a bit. Everything's going good. Then kind of take us through what happened with your job in kind of an unexpected turn. Yeah. So I've been back in the ER since 20 into 2016. Um, and, and like I said, it's, I mean, I, I do love it. You can't, you don't do it if you don't love it. You know, I, I do say kind of tongue in cheek that, you know, do it for schedule and all that, but it's, it's too hard. You don't make enough if you don't, if you don't love it. 
that being said, the, the shelf life thing is great. Well, I've got, so now my, now my daughters are both playing volleyball, play softball and we've got, we've got tournaments. And so dude, the nights, at nights on, on 20, 27, 28 year old Jason were easy. And the nights on uh, like 42 year old Jason were not that easy. Um, flipping back and forth was getting harder. Kids were getting older. I had a five year non-compete after selling the clinics. So I, I couldn't work in, in an urgent care within 50 miles of Columbia. So ER was really my only option. Um, it was getting down. There was, there was rumored to be a sale. The people that bought us were going to get bought, which would have negated my non-compete. And I was just licking my chops to be able to go back to work in urgent care, get out of the, the grind of the night shifts and weekends and stuff like that. So I had this mentally, I was like, oh, if this happens, this be good. Well, it fell through. And so, and I had one foot mentally out the door on the ER. It's like, this is good. I can finally give these, give these things up. And, you know, I was at the time I was working at women's and children's hospital here in Columbia, which is good, but it's, it is the riskiest of the risky with, with pregnant lady, new babies and children being sick. So it's, uh, again, it's like, man, this is, uh, I did this wrong. <laughs> like exited business and you like, you did right off in the sunset. Well, here I am like four years later and working harder than I ever have. So um, I got approached about an opportunity um, with Veterans United, with, which is a, an amazing company, but it's a VA mortgage company. I was like, okay, cool. Like, like to be a doctor for the company? And like, <laughs> no, like we're starting up a new customer service division. And I'd taken care of a lot of the folks that had worked here and the folks that, that owned the company. And they just liked how we did things, like how we took care of somebody. Again, like that's the basics of business, right? Communication and take care of somebody, just take care of the customer. So they said, you want to give this a shot? So I interviewed, uh, went through a couple rounds of interviewing and man staying in the kitchen with uh, my wife, Lana, I was like, this is, uh, I think I might do this. She's like, you crazy? Like, you're not like you went to school, like for however many years and all of the stuff you put in. I was like, yeah, but I think this is, I think this is, uh, this is enticing. Like this is kind of exciting just to get out something new, jump over into management. I mean, we owned the business for, you know, five, almost six years. It, it wasn't foreign at, at one point we were up to, you know, darn near 30 employees, which I thought at the time was a lot. Um, so I did it jumped over to uh, VU in June of 2019 and here we are in February of 2022 and got sitting just at uh, 195 people that um, I have uh, in my division and it's been uh, it's been really cool been a learning learning process uh, for sure 30 195 people different than 30. One thing for sure is you know you see this and it's like who would even think that a doctor who would even think to ask a doctor to make this switch or, you know, whatever, just things that come to my mind. But one thing I'll say is, you know, when you're, when you deal with people, even if you're not in their industry or whatever, but you deal with people, you kind of make mental notes as you go along. Like, man, I wish that dude worked with me or for me or whatever. One thing I'll say about Jason is when you deal with them on anything or talk to him, he remembers stuff. He makes a point to acknowledge things. He can keep a bunch of balls in the air. Like when you come away with dealing with them, you're like, I don't know how that dude kept all that straight. I was speaking to women's children's. We're sitting there. My daughter, Mary Lane's being born. Knock on the door. Here's Jason. We're giving her her first book, first gift. I was like, there ain't no way somebody that's in an emergency room with 80,000 things going on is going to remember that. So that kind of stuff is just, when you talk with Jason, you get a feeling like, all right, I know this dude can handle it. He's not, he ain't the dude that's going to forget something. I guess my whole point in saying that is we get all these questions, Jason, about, what do we do? How do we get in this industry? How do we do this? How do we do our own thing? How do we do that? How do we get better opportunities? Well, it, it sounds dumb. It's like what your teachers or your parents say, but how you treat people and how you are respond to people and how you communicate, it all kind of comes back to that. It does. It does. And I bet, I know, I know Ira uh, knows this, but it's about, you know, and I've, I've learned this in spades here. It's about acquiring talent. It's about, it's about good people, you know, find good people you have stuff in common with and, uh, you know, latch on to them. And that's your network and grow your network stronger, grow it bigger, grow it wider and good things happen. You 
have to have a good team. I mean, we've proven that with Habitat Flats and everywhere else, if you don't have a good team, it all rolls downhill. And you might be riding on Easy Street one day, and you might be scooping poop the next day. So, <laughs> That's right. Ira, from the Habitat Flat side of things, you know, you get Jason on board, and when you go to a meeting and you guys are are involved or doing whatever, you know, what what does he bring to a to a a deal like that? That maybe not saying that it wasn't there before, but what what kind of deals when you're dealing with him does he bring to the to the table from a partner slash you know planning standpoint? I think the main thing is that he cares and he wants things to be the best and the fairest they can be for the business. Um, and, but the biggest thing is that he really cares and he's objective. And that's always, you know, whenever you can add somebody like that to your, your management team, you're better off. So that pretty much sums that up. You know, I'll interject real quick. Like the Habitat Flats is a good example of what I was just talking about, about finding finding good people you know you're talking about dan tony aaron and ira it's like sign me up what they've done and what the background is and the track record it's like it's just people you want to be associated with jason you remember we were hunting up there at your lease whenever we were talking about this kind of preliminary me and you i was like man you you were telling me this like this all this stuff was changing i remember i was like i don't know if you'd have any interest in this or not dude but i know i would if i had the money or whatever and you're like this deal's you were like, what now what? I remember you didn't waste much time. Yeah, I knew the time that I was the time that I was spending on at that time, gosh, I think it was like five or six little places. Like like I had Minden, which was a pretty, you know, 160 acres, pretty decent sized place where the camp was. But you know, 20 acres over here, 50 over here, and 75 over here, and partners with this guy, like the things that it took to get these get into these things is partnering with this guy over here, partner with a different guy over here, this I can get into. And then this lease, it's like, I knew I was spending on all that. I knew the time I was spending on all of it. Um, I was like, well, it's about the same. It's about six. Uh, you know, the only thing that I really miss is uh, I don't, don't get my hands near as dirty now with the stuff that I like to do, getting up there and messing with water control structures and, and uh you know things like that it that's that's the one disadvantage of being in a nine to five uh is you're i know what the weekend guys are talking about now that, that was not my life you know i'd have i could hunt six days in a row if i wanted to in the er days and uh it's, it's a little different now but that's the trade-off to anybody that's listening to this yes you heard that right we got a guy who's ownership and collection of properties at habitat flats and he's he's reminiscing on water control structures and, and duck chores. So if anybody has any of those to do, um, Jason will go ahead and continue to shoot his limit every day. And he'll just, just DM what you have for him to do. And he will be happy to do that. Sounds like first you'd world. Be doing, you'd be doing me a favor. Yeah. First you'd world be- problem. <laughs> Here we are again. You got a guy with, you know, higher education and is making his money and being successful doing stuff, doing something that people thought he was crazy to even think about doing, you know. It's kind of kind of cool, though. I mean, really, it is. But the thing I think is cool about it is how many people do you know, both of you and, and I know, I see it in the ag community. I see it in small rural America. I see it in corporate America. But how many people get doing something and it's like, you know what, that's cool, VU. Appreciate y'all. But I'm in I'm in the medical field like I know the terminology. I know the people. Because I know, Jason, when you started with Veterans United, tell us what your tell us kind of what your division's doing there and what you're doing there. But I know when you started, when I was talking to you, like, you know, every couple of days, you're like, man, this is this is legit. Like, I mean, it it was no any walk in the park. You know, we're on the ground floor of that deal. So, I mean, it mm-hmm. wasn't like, well, I was an entrepreneur, did my own thing, and now I'm working for somebody else, and I don't have to worry about, you know, it's not like that. So, one, it's remarkable that you would you would see an opportunity and and can take it in another field but two, talk a little bit about some of the after you kind of had things figured out what starting that new division was kind of like yeah it was I mean it was it was starting from scratch it was starting from literally square one with learning about learning about the mortgage industry and like I was I was back in school which which I don't mind like I'm, I'm good at school like that's my one skill that I have is test taking um and so, like, I'm trying to learn terminology in the financial field of, 
of APR and interest rates and, and, and mortgage terms and pre-quals and this and that. So I had to get, I had to learn, I had to learn enough of the industry to be, to speak intelligently on it and make intelligent decisions about how do we apply this customer service idea of somebody to um, hold a veteran's hand through the home buying process. And the home buying process is super scary. Like we deal with a ton of first time home buyers. Um, first time home buying, you really don't know necessarily about, you know, what's the difference in a buying agent and a seller's agent. And how about homeowners insurance? Like, what do you need? Like, we have to have that. No, that's a requirement. And, you know, um, got all the partnerships that we have, the things that you ha need to ha have to get in your house, internet, TV, security systems. So we develop a set of people to say, hey, like you talk to this guy, he's your financial guy, he's going to get you the money to get in this house. But there's this entire process that goes on that we're here to hold your hand on. And that's what it is, it's just taking care of somebody. It's just holding their hand, walking them through it and decreasing anxiety. So fear is the number one barrier to, to home ownership, just the whole process. Um, and we know that through research and, you know, uh, some of our, some of our partners. So we had to start day one, like, what are we going to do? When are we going to do it? And what's it sound like? So it was, it was cool because coming from that, the, the medical world and, and being, I still consider myself a, a academic is, you know, AB testing the bejesus out of stuff. Like what's, what's its sales like let's bring in a sales cadence does a sales cadence work for customer service well only if you know no it doesn't so okay now we're blowing people up too much now we got to back off do you call in two days do you call in five days do you call in seven days and so like getting enough data points to actually analyze it and see what's working what's not um are, are we doing a good enough job of getting them you know a certain type of realtor that we work with that's familiar. Like the VA loan is a very specific product that has a lot of nuance. And so if you don't have somebody that knows what they're doing, you can get, you know, you can miss out on houses or get taken cleaners because there's just, it's a, it's a different animal. So we do the best for our veterans to make sure they are as set up as possible to be successful in their endeavor to get a house and get moved in. So it was like, all right, you know, let's listen to this call. Oh, Oh shit, that didn't work. Do not do that again. Okay, that was, don't say that, don't do that. Throw that one out. Okay, let's try this, let's try this. So we started with three. Um, over about three, four months, we were able to see that the numbers were, the, the lines of success were starting to diverge and that the folks that, that our people were involved with were being more successful. And we said, okay, there's a little signal. Let's push on that, you know, hired 20 more refine the system, better communication with, you know, with loan officers and everybody else in the company. And uh, lo and behold, the, the lines just kept kind of diverging and, and we were pretty successful at uh, doing the things that we were trying to accomplish in terms of being there as an additional resource for the veteran through a pretty uh, stressful time. And uh, so we're a big company, you know, and so at scale, at scale, it takes a lot of people to keep the machine running. And uh, um, that's why I'm pretty lucky to be here with the guys. Again, it's like you keep coming back to these concepts. It's about people. And so now, I mean, the, the folks that I've been lucky enough to meet and work with here in this company, and a lot of them have just stories. Like, you know, one, one of the guys I meet with every week was involved in cancer research. Um, you know, I work with an engineer that now works here. And you just like you've got so many people because it just attracts, it attracts good people and good people get together, work together for a common goal, generally successful. And that's kind of where we are now. So back to the original question, it was, that is my jam is starting something from scratch, not knowing what the hell's going on and figuring it out. I mean, it's, it's a cliche around here now. I'm basically an agent of chaos. Like if we're not changing something once a month, then I don't know what to do with myself. Um, so we, we, it's, we're always trying something different. Do this, don't do that. Let's add this, see if these, see if they like this, um, you know, and I'm not afraid to add something, I'm not afraid to take something away that's not working. Um, so that's, and that's the ER, that's the flexibility and adaptability of the ER of you don't know what's coming in the door next. You don't know if it's going to be somebody coding or somebody that doesn't need anything. Like you can't, 
never complacent. It's just, you know, ER tends to attract the adrenaline junkies. And I identify with something you said in the intro of the uh, podcast. I have that addictive personality too. It's either a one or a zero. Um, And uh, like, I got to watch that because that's not, you know, all of a sudden you're, all of a sudden you own part habitat flats. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's right. I'm, I mean, I've, I've, only could afford about a Habitat Flats hat, but I'll tell you this, I'm, I'm one move away from, from throwing it all away at any point in time. I don't know how I've kept it on the rails, but it's, it's, it is, it's exciting whenever you get stuff rolling and you know, whenever you, whenever you can kind of see it to fruition, but I know Ira, you could talk about it a little bit too, but you know, you got Momarsh rolling, got it going, grow, 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 grow. And then it's like, you know, the dream is make it so valuable that everybody wants it and they're going to make you an offer. You can't refuse, but both of you guys with selling your urgent care and, and it's a little bit different of what Ira had invested emotionally with his, but in, in Momarsh, both of you guys could kind of speak to, you get to that point, you get to that point, you get to that point, And then you make that sale. There has to be a little bit. And I know for Ira with Momarsh, it's like, all right, now what, you know, it's like you put so much into something. It's gotta be a little bit tough to make that tra- transition on the successful side. Even Momarsh was extremely difficult for me. Uh, the clinics, not so much. Of course, I'm, you know, it's still there. But you know, Momarsh was a was a little, even even when we were doing a, a lot of business, you know, we still just had a couple of employees, and the, you know, we were a major cogs on the wheels. So it was a little different. I don't know, Jason, for you when you sold urgent care with thirty employees, um, you know, I don't know how difficult that was for you, or or maybe you were pretty comfortable with it. It was, uh, it was really difficult. Um, it was difficult because we knew, we knew our employees really, really well. Like we, we were great. We relied on them. They, we had a, a fantastic group and we had a good thing going. And so we exited, it was tough for them. It was tough for us. It was a, it was a gigantic decision because we were going well and we had reached the point where you either sell now or we're going to Sedalia and Kirksville and the lake. And it, it was either, it was kind of put a, another layer of risk and go big and have, and be big, 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 or like, Hey, this is pretty good. Like this is, this is not retirement money, but this is a pretty good lick. Um, and you know, gives you a little bit of breathing room. So we went ahead and took it and the decision's hard, but the regret afterwards is, Man, I, I guess call it seller's remorse. It, it depends. To be honest, I, I think we've talked about this before, and, and you guys can cut it out later, but I don't know of a sale of a takeover business where the resulting product was better than the original. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to identify one. So for us, it's like, okay, we worked there for a year. We we all these new people come in Kansas city from Arizona, got to use their system. Like don't use the system. Don't do this. Don't do that in Columbia here. We know Columbia, you just listen to us. We're like, here, here's how you drive this bus. Right. Here's the shifter. You just hold on to the wheel and you keep going down this road and you're going to be all right. And so, okay. A year comes They're They're starting to be like, what's this button? What's this button? We're like, God damn it. Just hold on to the wheel and drive this some of a bitch straight and you'll be fine. No, what's like, okay, we're out. So as soon as we could get out, we got out because we saw the writing on them. They were changing up a bunch of stuff. We told them not to change. And then it was like, we stepped off the bus and we watched this bus that we built drive right off a cliff right in front of us in terms of the business model that we had built all of the, the goodwill and the, the name that we had built in Columbia over six years. And it took them about nine months to tank it. Corporate deals have learned a lot in the last five years, last seven years. That's how it used to be much more in the vet world. And now they're, they're much more joint venture oriented, keeping you on board, not changing not changing the face of anything, not changing the name, not changing. They don't want any, anybody to know anything's happened. They just kind of want to take care of what they're good at behind the scenes. And that's 
that's got to be a much more successful deal than coming in and yanking the carpet and you know you just way, isolate people way, way better way better i still get messages like why did you do this like why did you do this like we don't go there it's so bad it's so bad I'm like i know like, that hurts like that kind of even though it's not you it's still you you know what i mean like oh absolutely i mean there's i mean it took a long time for people to understand because they kept our name that it was not us and we had god i don't know how many facebook messages i had to buy to of like hey i feel you it's not us anymore uh, even uh, small stuff and like the people that bought hunters wholesale for me it's not like they ran it to the ground i mean hell i'm sure if you looked at the numbers they're doing way better than i was but i get all these messages from people for like a year and a half that were like what the hell man no more like handwritten notes what the hell like what what's going on i'm like that was just like burned like i don't know why but you know i always did that stuff and and i didn't expect the new company to continue doing that nor did i expect to even care be like oh, i'm tired of writing my writing the damn notes my hands cramped up but when they didn't do that it was like that's what you know like that's what we do here damn it like but no it's not because you sold the thing and moved on road on to the sunset and they do it whatever the hell they want to do so it's just a weird i don't know it's just i feel like if you didn't have a little bit of attachment to it you probably didn't do put put into it what you should have when you had it yeah my partner was better at it he's like hey they they bought the game they can play with it how they want when when the people that have built it are there you're quick and you're nimble and you know what you're doing and uh you can make fast decisions and and pivot and all that stuff and i think you know when when corporate gets involved there's not there's not the the responsibility that is succinct and defined because well that's so-and-so's department and well we'll have a meeting about it and you don't have somebody right there that knows everything about everything going no this is what we're going to do or no this isn't what we're going to do and you get paralyzed by analysis and delays and so-and-so's department and all that and you know that is what happens and and makes businesses less successful generally when they're purchased by a large entity in my that's right especially missouri being an at-will state for for hiring like somebody didn't work out the front desk we could be like here's two weeks and we'd have somebody hired literally the next day off craigslist right um you know it was just you could just move you could just make changes do this there wasn't you know 72 verbal and written warnings before you know termination and and uh things like that when we i remember whenever i wrote was talking about selling momarsh there at the beginning uh i was like i don't know i maybe knew something about it but not enough to know that it was actually going to happen i was laughing about it and we were in canada at that damn restaurant watson motor Inn, where we dumped all these uh we duped all these people they said they wanted what they want snow goose meat and we took them three trash bags full of <laughs> goose meat so if if when he but when he was talking like yeah i'm gonna sell this deal i was like if i wouldn't have been holding uh, 160 pounds of honker meat i would might have had to try to swing at him because i was like damn it you can't do this but you know i would be remiss if i didn't say and this you know i still do work with higdon those guys are great it could have been way worse they do great it's nothing like that it was just whenever ira sold that thing it was just like you know when you when you see somebody sell a business small business like everybody's rooting for everybody's rooting for the small business you know it's just it's just Mm -hmm. different whenever you whenever you do that now that being said there's definitely things that I feel like when you sell it, when it's a successful sale, that they can take it to new heights that you never could have and never would have even thought about. And so that's really a cool part too, but it's definitely a transition period there. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so Jason, what you talked about putting these farms together and you know, you probably underplayed it a little bit, but I mean, talk about the, me and you have talked about this a lot. Talk about some of the work that went into securing those farms. And even though you were excited to join Habitat Flats, all the stuff you did to do that, it had to be a little bit bittersweet too. I mean, how many phone calls, how many letters, how many meetings? Oh God. I mean, hundred percent. I mean, I still have, I still, I still do it as like a, a vestige of a habit that I can't let go. I mean, not a day goes by. Like, I can't, what if we had Onyx back in like the late nineties? Like I still have stacks of plat books from Lynn, Livingston, Sheraton, Carol, Celine, 
uh, Randolph, uh, Boone, Cooper, like, and it was, it was this game, like flipping through the plat book, driving around, marking stuff, knocking on doors, uh, sending letters. My, I, I mean, I had a Easter and Christmas ham budget of sending to people. And I mean, I'm not, a, I don't consider myself a great salesperson. I, I mean, I didn't have great results, but it, it eventually, it eventually paid off. So there was, there's the research and I still do it. I mean, I, honest to God, and a day goes by that I'm not on uh, Google earth or on X, just looking at stuff and, you know, premium white pages. And my dad's, my dad's an attorney. And I was like, like, what do you need to know? Who, whose address and number do you need? Oh. I can have it in about three to three and a half minutes. You can have, uh, no, I'll take it further. He can have people. I think he could have people's social security and blood type because <laughs> this dude, like if you tell him that you're looking for something and I, I kind of thought to myself, like, now there's no, you know, cause I'm the guy, I don't even have television, but Hillary will be like, my wife will be like, what are you over there looking at? It's literally on X. I don't know how I have a phone screen left because all night, every night, I'm looking around at stuff that I already know the answer to. I, I'm not good at a lot, but there ain't nobody who, who could, if you put a quiz in front of all of us, everybody that I know of who owns what next to who and who borders what and where's this and that, I'm, I'm just going to say I'm winning that because I do nothing but look at Sheraton County on Onyx. But Jason, you would probably be, you would know more about a bigger area by far than I would. Yeah. But what's crazy is it's like when you do all that stuff, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how I even get to work of a day. I'll stay up all night looking at this stuff. But when you put Jason on a deal, one, he probably already talked to the person. So that eliminates a lot of the stuff you're trying to track down. And he could tell you this, that, or the other about that. But two, I thought I had Onyx on a plat book and, you know, whatever. Oh no, he's got, I don't know, white pages and yellow pages and red pages and family history and ancestry.com and his dad's at the courthouse. And he, I mean, they will get your report back. You feel like you should not know this information about these people when they do. It's, that's, that's about right. Uh, and, you know, I'd have about four or five, oh, hell more than that. I'd probably have six um, real estate pages. You'd cruise every 48 hours to make sure there wasn't a new listing, <laughs> Yellow Creek Realty and and then you, I'd get Wheeler in your, I'm an auction, any new auctions coming up. And it was like, all right, let's check the map, check the auctions, check the real estate. Um, you know, uh, you know, back, you know, back not that long ago, um, I was talking to Jody Graff. I was like, all right, here, man, I, here's a list of 15 places. I've written, written the letters, uh, you know, like trying to partner with somebody that knows somebody else. I mean, it was just, it's a lot. And, but eventually again, eventually you get a crack, eventually you get a crack and you, and you get a place. And uh, I'm working on one of the things I'm working on to improve myself is contentment. Uh, but like being okay with like, it didn't work. You got ways to go. But whatever I'm doing, it isn't working. Um, because I don't ever want to go, I don't ever want to go to a Sheraton County, uh, trivia night that where one of the topics is who owns what because I'd walk away with a glass of water and a piece of popcorn that fell on the floor. I tell you this, and this is no joke because Ira has bought and sold a couple farms. I think I think I would take myself on what everybody else owns versus Ira on what he owns. Yeah, <laughs> I really think I could do that. I really do. Yeah, that, yeah, no, I. I know where most of it is. So I guess, Jason, that's where I'm going at. Like with your job, with your hunting, with your career, with everything. And Ira is the same way, maybe not with the maps, but he's always trying to do this and that and this and that. I mean, his last 18 businesses he started, he wouldn't have had to. So I notice and what I see with people is like, you're never content. And contentment is definitely something that I need to work on too. But there's a level of that there that's like, that's what separates the the guys that are, when you talk to somebody in, you know, this year, that's what separates the guys that in three years have two hours worth of stories to tell you from the guys that are like, well, still over here at wherever, you know, it's like that lack of contentment can be troublesome, but it also seems to breed some of the best situations that in, in opportunities that, that you can, that you can find that you have. Found. Yeah, it does. It drives. And now like it, I like to see, I like to see other people succeed as well. So Hell, it's fun for me doing legwork for somebody else. Like, 
I know I'm not even buying it, but I, it just, it's what I like to do. So yeah, he'll give, me, he'll like, give you a he'll project. Give, he'll give you a report that he's tracked down all this stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna call these people, see if they'll sell it or whatever. What do you, you know, you want to go to get, Hey, I'm just telling you, I've got nothing to do with this. I, all I'm doing is putting it together. I, I can't do this. I'm not going to do it. It's like, well, thanks. I mean, he's, you know, he probably ought to have an agency doing that kind of stuff, but it, it is kind of cool how you enjoy doing it so much. That's another thing, you know, helping other people do. It. I know he's helped me with a bunch of stuff and, and other people too. It, it's just kind of, it's kind of cool to see the fire still going when guys get to the spot where everybody would say, Oh, that person's made it or that person's here or there. It is kind of cool to see people still kind of rolling up their sleeves, trying to, trying to make stuff happen. I don't think some people that never dies out in, which is, which I think is cool. Here was a question we had from our listeners and we had this last week. We'll all three answer it. I can answer it last. We'll start with Ira, then go to Jason, then I'll do it. What is your ideal hunt? And I said, you got to hit us with a little bit more than that, but here is a, so we came down to where and how, so give us some conditions and where would you be at and kind of describe the ideal hunt of how you kind of draw it up. Ira, you go first. Goodness gracious. And we're not talking about parakeets and other bullshit. We're talking about duck or goose hunting. <laughs> duck or goose. Man, that's restrictive. Okay. Um, you know, I, I like it all. That's for sure. I love to shoot them where they live. So it's got to be, it's got to be probably my favorite, my favorite time that happens almost every year. It didn't happen this year. It's the only year I remember where it did not happen is when, you know, so our, our main farm that we hunt is a 420 acre WRP close to the refuge. When it gets really, really cold, which happens pretty much every year, the ducks, the, the habitat there just will not keep the birds. They leave it. They just cannot, they can't stay in that habitat when, you know, the nights are sub-zero and the highs are in the teens. So they'll leave it and they'll go either down to the river or over to the refuge somewhere and, and uh, there's a lake pretty close to us, and they'll go to that lake a lot. But anyway, it's it's awesome, and a lot of you guys will be able to relate to this on warm-up. So we'll get a deep freeze. They leave for a little bit. I go and do something else, go hunt somewhere else. And then the, we'll drop an ice heater in uh, where they've been kind of staying. We have refuge on our place we don't hunt. But we will hunt it on, on a warm-up after it's frozen. They've left. So... We'll open up a hole down there where every afternoon those ducks will come and they'll check that. And uh, so you can just have some burner hunts. I mean, they're coming, they're little dots way up there and you got that ice hole and buddy, here they come and get front and center. And it's just like, you know, you're going to get them every afternoon. And then once it warms up to a certain degree where the refuge is going to be really available to them again, then we'll get out of there and let them get right back in there. But we generally will get, somewhere between five and 10 days a year where we have an opportunity to hunt them that way. And it's pretty awesome. Hell, it, it, the thing that always sticks out to me is, you know, hunting out in a WRP and doing, not that you can't do them other times, but the, the size of the bunches you can do when they want in there so bad, it's just really cool. Jason, what about you? You know, I, uh, hot take alert. I'm not a huge timber guy. So like for me, the perfect hunt now not not sight like I love big like get a big bunch and just like I can't even stand it I'm just grabbing guys next to me like oh my god are you seeing this but for a hunt I mean like if they're big enough you're not going to shoot into the bunch so it's cool to see but for a hunt layout boat three four rows back into the corn sunny day wind cold singles doubles threes fours at five yards I mean, that's, and feels like, yes, I grew up, quote, grew up, like, I consider it grew up at Grand Pass, like, stuff we did at Mark Twain Lake back in the day was cool and all, but, you know, uh, give me, give me a layout boat in the corn and mallards in the face. I know one thing, and I, this is an aside, if you ain't got a Mark Twain story, you ain't got shit. If you ain't got a story about back in the day at Twain, then I don't even want to talk to anybody. <laughs> I, I can't disclose. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know one thing I, I don't, I'm going to say something different than what you guys said. Um, what my favorite way to do it. Uh, if I had to pick and I like doing anything, I will literally do anything to, to kill stuff, kill ducks. Uh, but 
if I had to pick, it would either be one of my places, um, my holes there or, or somebody else, but I don't really care where, but it'd be a smaller kind of timber hole type deal. I don't care if I'm there, who I'm there with, as long as I got my dog there, but I, I want to, I want it to be sunny and windy. Aaron McCauley, as he always says on those days, Oh, we're going to get them. If you're, you might not get them right off the bat, but if you're willing to stay there for long enough and I will stand there for longer than the tree I'm standing next to, I don't, I'll wait anything out. I'll sit anywhere. I'll stay anywhere. But um, sunny, windy day in a timber hole woods scenario getting right. You know, they're over top of you and they're breaking them. I mean, hunting where they live is awesome and it's amazing or where they're feeding is awesome. It's amazing show, but man, when you can bust them, break them down in to where they don't really want to be and you got the conditions uh, to do some decent, you know, eight, 10 up to, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 or more to me, that that's mine. If I, if I had to pick, but all three of them, I, I'm, I'm going to go on all three of them. Every time I get invited, you mentioned 20 that my dad and I went up to bum around Sumner Sunday and we we're talking about, I actually said, do you realize what you did? Like, Definitely child abuse. Three grown dudes and a child in a 16-foot flat front john with white caps with three inches of gunwale showing because you got eight dozen super mags cutting across there, white capping up uh, North Fork and Otter Creek with a grass blind and gas stoves that catch. I mean, it, <laughs> it just why? I mean, just, just why? I mean, the same reason Ira sunk boats and shit and everything else. I mean... It's so, if you sit there and do the cost benefit, if you really think, is this a good idea or not? You know, you're still going to go. You're probably still going to go ahead and make the bad decision. But on some of that stuff, it's like, when you look back, it's like, why? Why? But there's no way to explain it. Hey, if you ain't almost dying, you ain't trying. (laughs) True. I know, I know, look at the way you used to do stuff. Like, I mean, whenever I started hunting, nobody in my family hunted at all. Duck hunted. Nobody. So I got some decoys. I'm like, hell, I got her whip. Now I got two dozen decoys. This is unreal. So I go out and hunting and there was no wind or whatever. I'm like, oh, pretty good hunt. You know, didn't kill shit, but it was pretty fun. And so then it went to, damn, there's some wind now. I didn't know I needed to put weights on these things. They didn't come with weights. I, I don't know. So, you know, I was chasing decoys around the strip pits and such. And uh, it was like, man, this is a hell of a deal. So I remember somebody telling me like, no, you put like monofilament line on there and, and weights, like what the hell? So I was like, all right. So did that. Perfect. That all worked great. Except for I was throwing them out in water so deep that my dog had to retrieve them. And that's one thing I've always had my dogs be able to do is retrieve decoys because I know me and I'll revert back to my old ways, but it's just weird how, like when you, when you see how you start, I, I wish I had some of those stories about Mark Twain or people that took me out hunting or whatever, but really no, in reality, <clears throat> my stories were, I didn't know to put weights on decoys and I was chasing around a pond and never did kill shit. And so here we are, but it is kind of funny how everybody's story is different, but I I don't have a Twain story, but a Twain type story, but um, I have almost died a few times. So I guess I'm, I guess I do have that covered. What's next, Jason? Like what's next? Like from a VU standpoint, from a habitat flat standpoint, what, what's next? What would you say is next? Man. um, As I was just talking about, you know, all this moving around and stuff like that. I mean, we have, we have plenty of change where I'm at to, to keep my attention here. And I still work in the urgent care. Like I still doctor on, on the weekends and some afternoons, you know, the medical license is too valuable a, a resource to just give up entirely. And it comes in pretty handy. I do plenty of medicine around here every day to keep, uh, keep interested in it. Um, you know, you know, habitat, the great thing about habitat is we are, we're always evolving, like always looking at how we can do how can the experience be better? What's what's next on hunting? I mean, we're never never resting on habitat flats in terms of making that better. And then you know, uh, habitat flats kennels just started. And so again, like like I, that's kind of, that's how I got dogs are really how I got into the industry is by having a good dog. So that's kind of right. That's kind of right in my lane too. And I've been. Um, happy to you know pay pretty close attention to that as we're starting uh, habitat flats kennels up that's been super fun to get into uh, you know with clinton uh logan and the crew up there getting things going so you know between all the stuff that goes on here and you know what it mounts to a brand new startup uh subsidiary of habitat flats i mean that's that's enough to keep me keep me going 
Absolutely. I mean, that's what you just mentioned is, you know, enough to probably keep 10 people going, but it kind of all comes back to having the right people in place and, and having the right network. I mean, you know, it's crazy. You know, you knew, you kind of go back to how you knew Clint. I mean, hell, how long have you known Clint before he started working with Habitat Flats? Oh, geez. Like, God, late 90s? Um, like, 20, that's the thing. Is like, all of us have kind of been in and around each other for 20, 25 years. Like, I knew Clint when he was just starting out and working for Lyle um, Steinman over there. I was just starting out doing the hunt test thing. And, you know, again, it's like duck, hunt, like duck hunting world is small, but then you have niches within that world. Like, the duck calling world is even smaller. You see the same people everywhere. The dog world is smaller. You see the same people everywhere doing the same kind of things. Um, you know, I, my, my buddy Josh Raggio that makes duck calls, I'm not, like, we're roommates back in 2002 through, through 05, my whole time in, in Mississippi. But that is, has been a friendship that we cultivated and kept. And, you know, we, we hunt with each other still. And, you know, now he's making, you know, super duck calls and things like that well that wasn't wasn't anything he did back then we just hunted and he's a cool cool guy uh roommate we had tons of stuff in common um so yeah known lots of folks for quite a while um let's get i got three more questions for you jason that our listeners have submitted here um mm -hmm. this morning um, whenever I kind of let a couple people know what you're, you know, we're going to have you on or whatever, you can just kind of be quick hitters here. But what is one thing that you would say you wish you would have done differently on your journey through your career? Mm. What would you have given more emphasis to? What would you have given less emphasis to? Or are you one of those guys that's like, you know what, turned out for the best? I'd do it all the same way. Man, career wise, I would have paid so. Man, this is hindsight, hindsight speaking, of course. Career-wise, I would have paid attention to um, business stuff earlier. And that, that's, a, that's one of the great failings of medical education is we learned on the go when we decided to do it. You know, in, in med school and residency, like you're just learning, you're just learning the stuff. You're learning how to be a technician of the data and the information set of this is what can go wrong and this is how you fix it. So... I would have liked, and this is what I'm trying to push my daughter to do now, um, to little avail so far, but um, is expand out into not what you're doing. Even if it, even if you're not going to do it, you know, if you're in medical school right now, take finance business classes, you know, or, you know, if you're an undergrad and you're pre-med, take business classes, um, pay attention to investing and financial stuff. We got a late start. Now, a lot of that is because as a resident, we were making like 31, 32 grand, you know, working hundred hours a week. Like we're trying to make, we're trying to make a house payment, a couple car payments and just get through three or four years. So it's not like we had a bunch to invest, but I wish I would have known about it. So I would have done it better sooner. Um, you know, duck hunting wise, that, that one's, you know, ground wise, that one's easy too. I, I have, I've never regretted getting a place, but I got a whole bunch of places I put my boots on and had a chance at that I didn't take it for whatever reason. It wasn't the right time or seemed like it was too much. And it was never, you know, five years later, you're like, oh my God, if I could just turn back the clock and get that place for what it sold then when I said they're crazy, um, you know, you know, pull the trigger, pull the trigger on the land stuff and diversify early on the work stuff i would say that's pretty solid uh both of you guys can answer this one um jason you we could go on for two hours about this with all the different variations but duck call wise both of you guys what's on um what's on your lanyard duck call wise mine is uh first mondo jim ever gave me is still almost only duck call I blow. I mean, I, I, I tune it a little bit different. I, I can get some range out of it. It's not monotone. Um, it blows different than the other, however many I have, which, which is not a small number. It, it just blows different. And, 
fits me good and there'll be times where i'm hunting somewhere and there's no wind or whatever and i'm like yeah i'm gonna blow this whatever today and i tune on it two or three times i'm like okay back to the one that works <laughs> when he changes reads it's like a when we're calling together it's like a two-week relearning period for me it's best it's best to stick with the coke bottle mondo with the with the piece of crap read it's just this is the best way it always is jason it gets kind of fuzzy and it looks like it hadn't shaved for a little bit and it's delaminating that's when it really gets good until the tires blow off of it and then you're then you're out of commission for a little bit jason man i uh i'm bad about i like to switch them up because i i collect calls so i've got quite a few but i guess like the lanyard i had this year i had um i had one of josh's calls on there raggio i had a cutter uh daisy cutter and then i had a mondo um uh, that uh, jimbo had set up for me i'm i'm better at a j frame call uh than than the cut downs i keep one um you know i can bullet adequately i wouldn't say that i'm a great cut down uh caller but it's nice to have that change up um, you know, if they're, if you need to bark at them, you know, I can do it. And then there's kind of got another lanyard that with, um, one of Keith's calls, a pure duck. I mean, pure ducks, one of the best sound calls I've, you know, ever blown. Um, got some old echo timbers from back when I was with, you know, some really dialed in ones that, uh, you just can't, you can't use them all. So I'll switch them up every once in a while, but go-tos would be the, the Rich and Tones and Raggio. All right, last one, last question we're going to ask. I feel like we could ask them all day, but both of you guys can answer this one too. If you're in a blind with some guys hunting and somebody had to ask you to assemble the best list of duck callers hunting-wise that you have who that you have hunted with, who are some of the people that would be on the list in a you know, meat style, actual hunting style scenario jason you can go first and then we'll get ira i'm sure ira will say him him and him but who would you who would you say jason if you could think of it? i know you'll leave people out but you know just a couple of people you would think of i will i will leave people out um man i love uh tj millette and and what he does on feed and hunting is um is is pretty crazy um i love um i love listening to jimbo call um hunt wise and um definitely i guess we're going in reverse order I'll, I'll end at the top joe weimer for pure pure uh, um just uh amount but i promise you one thing i never quit i never get tired of it that's one thing <laughs> you could say i there's probably a few people in my life that would say that not hey we're not talking quality we're talking quantity um ira what about you Did um obviously i'm around Several people that are people that sound really good on a duck call. Um, Joe is, he sounds good on a duck call, but when he starts to turn purple, uh, there have been times where I've almost called Jason to <laughs> see if he can bring over the oxygen tank and uh, uh, PPP so that we can get him on, you know, some uh give him some respiratory assistance but somebody, uh hey you know somebody has to break them and watch while ira's making breakfast and shrimp etouffee or whatever the hell he's making at 6 45 in the morning probably the most affected person that i've ever been around uh when it comes to calling is mark boss he was the first one to get a mondo at habitat flats and i remember i was in the eagle's nest with another guy john Platts, and there was there was a line of ducks Oh, shoot, three, 400 yards north of us. It was pretty consistent. And, I mean, we'd blown at him a time or two, but, I mean, we quit blowing at him. And, and Boss showed up, and he said, why – what are you doing? Get those things in here. And I'm like, yeah. And he's – I mean, he's the most annoying caller. We call him the car horn. He sounds terrible. He's not fun to listen to. But the guy can really – he knows when to call, and he calls super aggressively, and it definitely works. So – that's that's an unusual example, but a very good example. Um, and then you got guys like Kelly Powers and Jimbo that, you know, they're, they, they know they sound good. They know when to call. They have very different styles, um, but both both very effective. Uh, and the list goes on and on. But um, the people that I enjoy hunting with the most are the people that 
you know, that you can kind of work a rhythm back and forth with a different sound. So I don't want to call with someone that sounds just like me, even Michael. I, I want it to be able to hit tuna. I want it to be able to hit a lower note and then have a higher, different sound that'll, that may break a duck that's up there. Um, and so I think, you know, having a partner that knows how to call in sequence with you and bounce back and forth that's effective and then when it's time to get your gun drop the call and get your gun that's best advice i give anybody and the one thing i'll say fryer for sure if you're hunting with them and you don't sound very good or he doesn't think you sound very good or you did something wrong on the call the beautiful part about it is he will help you constructively criticize you in a way that makes you want to get better and uh <laughs> he really gives it a, it's i don't know it i wouldn't say it's a yeah, it's a soft touch, really. You know, hey, man, you might consider whatever. No, it's, dude, what, dude, what the hell happened to your call? It's like, well, hey, thanks, man. It's hey, man, I mean, it's all about personal improvement. I mean, if you don't let someone know, then how how would they know? Well, if you know, we, you know. I've also, let, know. I've let Ira know a few times and he hasn't listened. One time, the last story I'm going to end it on here, we're in Canada. Me, Ira, and a couple other guys. And uh, I was like, Ira was calling, I was calling. And so we get back and Ira's like, dude, your call sucks, man. You sound terrible, whatever. I'm like, all right. We, I'd already, we'd already been around the round through the ringer that morning, me and him. So on a couple things, but so he goes to chase a cripple or something. These guys were like, I was chasing cripples, whatever. He went to chase a cripple and these guys were like, hey, dude, they're like, you sound 10 times better than him. He sucks. They're like, he, he does not sound good. I'm like, Hell yeah. I'm like, yeah, he is. He really does not sound that good today. You know, like we're, you know, I was feeling pretty good. They're like, yeah, you just sound way, way duckier. It's just unreal, you know? So I'm feeling pretty good. I'm like, hell yeah, that's freaking badass. Well, come to find out Ira had told him to pump me up like that. And so he deflated me when he came back. He, they'd already planned this compliment, <laughs> but I did get to enjoy it for 15 to 20 seconds. And that was, you know, a little bit better than usual. I don't know what kind of call that was you had there, but I'm glad that it's disappeared. He called it a different thing every time. He said, take that Alpha 2 and throw it into the timber. He hated that call, and I didn't like it either, but, I mean, you know, well, folks. They're turning blue because you couldn't get any air through it. Dude, I mean, I didn't have – literally, my call that I had was my call that I had. I don't even know what the hell I was doing in Canada. You must have paid for the ticket. I, don't, I mean, I had no business buying another call. I don't know. Well, all I know is I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys have. Um, I know Jason has got stuff to do. He's He needs to wrap his day up, and we all do. But, Jason, <clears throat> really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight on, on a bunch of different stuff. Hey, man, thank you, guys. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. My dad would cook for him, and all the guides lived in this little – we called it the Mouse Mahal. I mean, it was just a little rundown shack. I'm kind of an addictive person. If I ever get on drugs, I feel like it's over. <laughs>